Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report this morning. An EHR vendor will pay $145 million to resolve criminal and civil investigations for accepting illegal kickbacks from an opioid pharmaceutical. Whistleblower Attorney Mary Inman is standing by in London to report our lead story. Healthcare Attorney David Glazer joins us this morning with another example of risky business. The OIG is going after early discharges from inpatient rehabilitation facilities to home health services. It's big news, and Angie Phillips has the details. Nicole Emanuel has the RAC report. Alan Fixander reports on the latest news on the social determinants of health. And we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. You know, I have the best friends. I was sitting in a meeting last Thursday at 11.58 a.m. when I got a text from Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins asking me if I was going to listen to the noon webinar on the moon being presented by NGS, the Medicare Administrative Contractor. I quickly found the link, signed up, and started listening. And oh boy, was I glad I did. NGS has taken the targeted probe and educate audits to a new area that one would never expect, the proper completion and delivery of the moon, the CMS mandated notice to observation patients. Now at first glance, maybe it's not bad since proper use of all of these required forms can be challenging and having external review may help improve processes. But then NGS takes things a step further. They have decided that the moon is not completely um, completed properly or delivered within the proper time frame that all the observation hours should come off the claim and you don't get the observation payment. Now stop and think about that. NGS seems to be saying that improper completion of a required form means you don't get paid for the care you provided. Does that mean if the important message from Medicare is not delivered timely, you don't get payment for the whole admission? Well, as you might guess, I was having none of it. I repeatedly asked in the chat box if CMS knew they were doing this and what regulation establishes that, they, uh, that a properly completed moon was a condition of payment. Of course, they had no answer to either question. Needless to say, CMS is now aware of the situation and looking into it. And speaking of observation, I've also been hearing about observation claim denials by Max, where the build hours exceeded 48, even though the national coding edit is set at 72 hours. In my webinar on Thursday, I'm going to talk about the details about how to properly use and bill observation to avoid these 48-hour denials. Now, I hope you read the Rack Monitor e-news bulletin about the widespread recoupments that are happening from admissions from 2016 to 2018, where a patient was discharged to home with no services, but ended, then ended up starting home care or going to another facility. Late last week, a hospital reported that they were having $620,000 recouped for 43 admissions. But what is startling is that for 21 of those, 
They agree the discharge code was wrong, but the length of stay was such that the payment would be the same either way. That's right, they're getting recouped the full payment and they were not overpaid one cent. If any claim error can now lead to a full recruitment, that would set a very dangerous precedent. And finally, last week, I was alerted to an Iridian bulletin from January 20th about the transcatheter aortic valve replacement requirements, um, reminding providers that two cardiac surgeons must examine the patient to determine appropriateness of the procedure. The problem is that that requirement was removed by CMS in June of last year. And the irony of all this is that CMS just held a listening session on MAC performance last week. Boy, would they get an earful if they did it now. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now's the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole. Good morning, Chuck, and happy Monitor Monday. Emergency room physicians or healthcare providers are a discreet breed. Emergency room doctors have, for the most part, been overlooked by the RAC auditors or TPE, ZPIC, or MAC auditors. Maybe it's because even RAC auditors have children or spouses that need ER services from time to time. Maybe it's because ER doctors use so many different billers. Normally, an ER doctor doesn't know which are his or her patients are Medicaid or Medicare. When someone is suffering, from a broken leg or a heart attack, the ER doctor is not going to stop giving care to inquire whether the patient is insured and by whom. Should the ER doctors have to ask patients their insurer? If the answer includes any sort of explanation that care differs depending on whether someone's covered by Medicare or Medicaid or has private insurance, then the answer sadly may be yes. ER doctors travel to separate emergency rooms owned by various and distinct entities and rely on individual billing companies. They don't normally work at one hospital, thus they don't always have the same billers. And we all know that not all billers are created equal. Some happen to be endowed with a higher understanding of billing idiosyncrasies than others. For example, for CPT codes 99281 through 85, we all know that hospital emergency department services are not payable for the same calendar date as critical care services when provided by the same physician or physician group with the same specialty to the same patient. Recent articles purport that EHR also may have big consequences on ER docs. They have stated, the move to electronic health records may be contributing to billions of dollars in higher costs for Medicare, private insurers, and patients, making it easier for hospitals and physicians to bill more for their services whether or not they provide additional care. And we all know different hospitals, different billing programs. I have a client named Dr. Ishmael. His big fish at this time was the Mac Palmetto. And very suddenly, like many ER docs, he provides services for Medicare, Medicaid, private pay, uninsured. It doesn't matter to him. He's an ER doctor. He gets a letter from one Mac. In this case, it was Palmetto. Interestingly enough, Palmetto was his smallest insurance payor. Maybe two surgeries a month were covered by Palmetto. 90% of his services are provided to Medicaid patients, not by choice, but just demographics and circumstances. The letter from Palmetto stated he's being excluded from Palmetto's Medicare network effective 10 days. 
he'll also be placed on the CMS preclusion list within four months. We appeal through Palmetto, but in the meantime, four other MACs, state Medicaid, and Blue Cross Blue Shield terminates Dr. Ishmael's billing privileges for Medicare and Medicaid based on Palmetto's decision. Now, remember, we're appealing Palmetto's decision because we think it's erroneous. The hospital execs have their meetings, and, but you have to remember that billing audits on ER doctors for Medicare and Medicaid compliance are distinctive processes than for other providers. Most providers know the insurance of the patient for whom they are rendering services. Most providers use one biller and practice at one site. But one seemingly paltry audit by a cameo auditor can disrupt an entire career for an ER doc. It is imperative to act fast to appeal in the case of an ER doc. The balance speed of the appeal with the importance of preparing all legal arguments. Most MACs or other auditing entities inform other payers quickly of your exclusion or termination. The moral of the story is ER docs need to appeal and appeal fast when billing privileges are restricted, even if the particular payer only constitutes four surgeries a month. Thank you, and back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Alan Fink-Sandick, Angela Phillips, and Mary Inman, who's standing by in London to report our lead story. This is Monday. It's February the 3rd, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Getting observation billing right has always been important to get cost reporting right, to ensure that reimbursement matches true costs, and that future rate setting is based on actual historic costs. Now it's more important than ever, because auditors are starting to audit for excess observation hours. Though it was previously felt not to be worth their time, auditors have learned that many healthcare professionals are not aware they may be billing observation incorrectly. Learn how to bill observation services correctly to avoid denials in a webcast featuring Dr. Ronald Hirsch this Thursday, February 6th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $40 when you enter the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. Here now is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, good morning. What could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So at the removal trial last week, Alan Dershowitz made a statement that was widely interpreted as saying that if a politician had multiple motives for a particular activity, but one of the motives was benefiting the public interest, any nefarious or improper motives are irrelevant. As I listened to him, I considered the risk that medical professionals would think uh, Dershowitz's position applied to financial relationships in the healthcare industry because he was articulating the exact opposite of the law as courts inter- interpret it when applying the Medicare anti-kickback statute. The Medicare anti-kickback statute makes it a felony to offer, pay, solicit, or receive anything of value with an intent to influence referrals. And first, I should clarify that the law uses the term remuneration. But when describing the law, it's better to avoid that unnecessarily confusing term. Remuneration is defined as compensation for work. And functionally, when it's used in the anti-kickback statute, it's viewed as any cash or in-kind exchange, which is why I prefer to latch on to the term value. Now, way back in 1995, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which is an appeals court for the northeastern part of the United States, reviewed a case where a board-certified cardiologist had established a Holter Monitor Company. 
Whenever that company performed an interpretation of the readings, it forwarded 40% of the reimbursement to the physician who had referred the patient to the company. The defendant, Dr. Grieber, had testified in an earlier case, quote, if the doctor didn't get his consulting fee, he wouldn't be using our service. So the doctor got the consulting fee. Now, Dr. Grieber argued that since there was some work being done by the physician who was getting the payment, as a matter of law, the payment couldn't be an improper kickback. Much like Alan Dershowitz's argument, he was saying that if there's any legitimate reason for a payment, the payment is legal. So the Court of Appeals analyzed this and rejected it, and they said the following important quote, We do not agree and hold that if one purpose of the payment was to induce future referrals, the Medicare statute has been violated. And that's the end of their quote. So this case established what we commonly refer to as the one-purpose test. And under it, no matter how many legitimate reasons there are for a payment, if one of the motivations is to incentivize referrals, the transaction is a felony. From a practical standpoint, this principle is really important. It means that if you just have one bad email or one rogue comment at a meeting, you can convert a perfectly legal transaction into an illegal relationship. For example, imagine that a hospital is going to set up what I would prefer to call a shared savings, but many people would call a gain-sharing program with the orthopedic surgeons, maybe a co-management deal. Basically, the, the hospital is going to pay the orthopedic group for its time working on the program, and that's totally fine. An email explains that there are many legitimate reasons for the relationships. It's going to lower healthcare costs. It's going to improve the quality of care. But if that email ends with, and paying the doctors will encourage them to send patients to the hospital, all of the other reasons become irrelevant. As soon as a participant in a transaction talks about how the finances create an incentive for referrals, the entire relationship is tainted. So, Tracy Chapman asks that you give her one reason. When it comes to the anti-kickback statute, one good reason isn't enough. Or perhaps I should say it the other way. If you know one reason for a payment is to encourage referrals, you'd better turn right back around. Give me one reason to stay here, and I'll turn right back around. Chuck, I turn it right back around to you. And there ain't no more to say. Thanks, David, for turning it right back around to me. That was David Glazer, David, a shareholder in the law firm of Fredericton to Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Sandwick. Alan also has a Monitor Money listener serving. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, all. And first, I must have to say what is new is uh, the Kansas City Chiefs win, and that also explains why my voice is a few octaves lower this morning and sounding maybe a little raspy. For over the past year and a half since I've been on Monitor Monday, you have all heard me discuss the social determinants of health, specifically those ICD-10 CMZ codes, which have been in place since roughly 2015. Now, it's been two years since the American Hospital Association indicated that documentation by the interprofessional team involved with the position 
uh, with the patient rather, would be accepted as validation of Z code use instead of only the physician's documentation. Now, it's been a few months since I mentioned my beloved codes and CMS's Office of Minority Health's most recent data highlight brief for January 2020 provides a great excuse for an update. Now, the number one question I often get when I present on this topic is, how often are the codes used? We've been waiting for some data, and now we have it. In the issue brief, Z-Code's utilization among Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries in 2017, we get a snapshot, and here's the lowdown. Among 33.7 million total Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries in 2017, 1.4% had claims with Z-Code's. The five most utilized Z codes were Z59.0, homelessness, Z60.2, problems related to living alone, Z63.4, disappearance and death of a family member, Z65.8, other specified problems related to psychosocial circumstances, and then Z630, problems in relationship with spouse or partner. Of the 460,136 Medicare beneficiaries with Z-Code claims, 334,373 individuals, 72% had hypertension, and 248,726 individuals, 53% had depression. In addition, for the same population, 349,000, so 75% were not dual eligible, and 170,000, or 25%, were dual eligible. Of that number, 35% were under 65 years of age. Now, Z59.0 homelessness was the only Z code with a higher utilization for males than females, and significant disparities were observed in Z59.0 among Blacks, Hispanics, and American Indians and Alaskan Natives, as well as Z63.4, disappearance and death of family members among American Indians and Alaska Natives. Now, keep in mind the results from this survey and this information were as organizations were still becoming aware of the potential value of codes. However, this was still prior to the heavy industry emphasis for codes and organizations to use those codes. Even though CMS missed a prime opportunity to provide organizations a fiscal hand by approving Z59.0 as a comorbidity for IPPS 2020, the codes still speak to industry need, case mix complexity, plus a boatload of other potential imperatives, including the realities faced by healthcare organizations. The issue brief is available in the resources for today's broadcast. Our Monitor Monday listeners survey this week asks, what are the most utilized ICD-10 CMZ codes for the Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries at your organization? A, Z59.0 homelessness. B, Z60.2 problems related to living alone. Z63.4 for C, disappearance and death of a family member. D, 65.8, other specified problems related to psychosocial circumstances. E, something else. We'll check back at the end of the broadcast. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author, Alan Vicksandrick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. (music) 
The OIG is going after early discharges from inpatient rehab facilities and home health services. This is big news, and Angela Phillips has the details. Good morning, Angie. Thanks, Chuck. Welcome again to our listeners. Uh, in our Looking Ahead segment earlier this month, we talked about OIG activities involving ERFs, including the greater likelihood for health systems with ERFs to actually have an OIG audit and the higher percentage of ERF cases audited by the OIG that have failed the test for reasonable and necessary care. Now, the OIG has added an additional ERF topic to their work plan for this year. The OIG will be looking at early discharges from inpatient rehabilitation facilities to home health services as an active work plan item, and a report is expected during fiscal year 2021. The announcement noted concerns that under the current policies, ERFs could be incentivized to discharge patients home prematurely under the care of home health services. The goal of this study is to determine how an ERF transfer payment policy for early discharges to home health services would financially affect Medicare Part A and ERFs. The background on this is related to the current payment model, which provides for transfer patients for ERF patients under certain conditions. However, ERFs receive payment of the full CMG amount when a patient stays more than three days and is discharged to home. This is true whether or not the patient receives home health services. There is, however, an adjusted payment for cases that are considered transfer cases. Current transfers policy provides for a prorated payment if the patient is discharged to another rehabilitation facility, a long-term care hospital, an inpatient hospital, or nursing home that accepts payment under either the Medicare program or the Medicaid program, and the length of stay for that case is less than the average length of stay for a given CMG based on the length of stay tables that CMS publishes each fiscal year. The newly added OIG review will examine whether cases that return to home with home health services should be treated as transfers as well and will assess the potential financial impact for change. This potential change is important to ERFs who frequently discharge patients to home with appropriate services, and those include referrals to home health, to assure that patients continue to recover functional ability and have reduced risk of return to an acute hospital. Home health agencies may want to be watching this issue as well. There are a few things to consider as we look at this. As our ERF listeners will know, one of the key measures ERFs have historically used to assess the quality of our services is the percentage of cases that are discharged to the community. A discharge home, with or without services, is a community discharge, and this is our goal. Additionally, home health services are not generally a factor in classifying discharges from other inpatient settings as transfer cases, so why address it with ERFs? And finally, home health services are important in providing the ongoing support for functional recovery for our patients and in reducing the number of patients who might bounce back to acute for any number of reasons. So while there are likely some few cases that could be discharged home early, there's an equal likelihood that ERF patients exceed the average length of stay yet don't hit an outlier payment, making this an interesting factor for OIG review. Our recommendation for ERFs? Continue to do what's right for the patient. Discharge when ready. Discharge with the appropriate level of services, including home health care, if that's what the patient requires. Document appropriately. And we all need to watch the OIG recommendations sometime in 2021. Back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Angela, very much. That was Angela Phillips. Angie is considered one of the nation's foremost authorities on IR services. Calling in live from London at this hour is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman, who reports our lead story. It's a story about Practice Fusion, a unit of all scripts soliciting and receiving kickback from a major opioid company in exchange for utilizing its EHR software to influence physician prescribing of opioid pain medications. Here now with our lead story is Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. Healthcare providers talk about the importance of behavioral nudges to their patients. Gentle pushes to encourage healthy choices and positive behaviors. Last week, however, news broke about a settlement in which healthcare providers were the ones being nudged. In this case, nudged to prescribe highly addictive extended release opioids in a manner that was not consistent with accepted medical standards. Who nudged them? Their own electronic health record system, which was paid to do so by the pharmaceutical company that made the drugs. In a first-of-its-kind settlement, electronic health records provider Practice Fusion, Inc. has agreed to pay a total of $145 million to resolve criminal charges and civil claims that it solicited and accepted unlawful kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies and misrepresented the capabilities of its EHR software. The settlement represents the first time that an EHR provider has been criminally charged with a violation of the anti-kickback statute and appears to be the first enforcement action alleging kickbacks from a pharmaceutical provider to an EHR company. As part of the settlement, Practice Fusion entered into a deferred prosecution agreement admitting that it accepted a million-dollar kickback from an unnamed pharmaceutical company, which Reuters has reported is Purdue Pharma, in exchange for programming provider alerts into its EHR software that were designed to increase the prescription of opioid medications sold by Purdue. Practice Fusion agreed to forfeit criminal proceeds of a million dollars and to pay a $25.4 million criminal penalty. The civil settlement requires Practice Fusion to pay $113.4 million to the United States and up to $5.3 million to the states. The settlement resolves claims related to the kickback scheme at issue in the criminal complaint, as well as 13 additional similar schemes with different pharmaceutical manufacturers. In addition, the civil settlement resolves claims that Practice Fusion knew that certain versions of its software would not satisfy certification criteria, which had to be met in order for providers using the software to be eligible for federal EHR incentive payments but nevertheless falsely represented to the certification body that the software was compliant. Now that you have the big picture, let's examine more closely Practice Fusion's alleged kickback scheme. EHR software is required to include clinical decision support features that give providers both general and patient-specific information based on data in the patient's health record that is intelligently filtered or presented at appropriate times to enhance health and health care. For example, CDS features aimed at providers can include the targeted highlighting of relevant data, such as high blood pressure numbers displayed in red text, preventative care reminders, links to treatment guidelines, and other reference materials. 
According to the criminal complaint against practice confusion, CDS features are required to be consistent with applicable evidence-based medical guidelines and with HHS's clinical quality measures. Practice Fusion is alleged to have developed 14 separate CDS arrangements with pharmaceutical companies between 2013 and 2017, accepting payment from the pharmaceutical companies and permitting them to participate in designing the CDS alerts. This participation included selecting the guidelines used to develop the alert, setting the criteria that would determine when the alert was triggered, and in some cases, drafting the language used in the alert. Although the clinical decision support alerts were designed to look like unbiased medical information, the U.S. prosecutors alleged that they did not always reflect medical standards and in some cases were designed to encourage providers to prescribe a specific product or class of products. In the case of the unnamed opioid company that Reuters has reported to be Purdue Pharma, Practice Fusion admits that it acted to further Purdue's commercial objective of increasing prescriptions for its extended-release opioids by targeting those patients who are not currently opioid users and those who were on immediate-release opioid medications, contrary to guidelines stating that ERO's use should be limited to specific situations. The pain CDS paid for and designed in conjunction with Purdue accomplished its commercial goals. Between 2016 and 2019, the pain CDS alerted more than 230 million times, and healthcare providers who received the pain CDS alerts prescribed EROs at a higher rate than those who did not. The conduct of practice fusion posed a serious risk of patient harm. CDS alerts of the type alleged are designed to conceal their origin. They are not advertisements. Instead, they conceal the fact that pharmaceutical providers are paying for preferential placement of material within an EHR system in order to increase its own revenues. It appears that the U.S. is not done investigating this fraud. The practice fusion settlement discloses that the company entered into 13 other CDS arrangements with a range of different pharmaceutical companies, and practice fusion has agreed to cooperate in ongoing investigations. In addition, with the pharmaceutical company at issue in the criminal scheme remaining unnamed, allegedly Purdue, further investigations of it may be ongoing. We will keep Monitor Monday listeners apprised as developments unfold. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary. That was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law firm of Constantine Cannon. She was reporting from the firm's London office. Alan Fink Samnick is standing by with the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. But we want to remind you of a very important webcast is now available on demand. It's about how to avoid being targeted by the OIG and auditors for medical device credit errors. It's led by Michael Callahan. It's excellent, and everyone should consider downloading this very essential webcast. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Alan Fink Samnick. What are the most utilized ICD-10 CMZ codes for Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries at your organization? We've got interesting results as always. A and D are tied at 27.5% each. Z59.0 homelessness, Z65.8 other specified problems related to psychosocial circumstances. Number two, problems related to living alone, Z6. 
and then disappearance and death of a family member's D63.4 came in last. However, still over 20% of those who participated in the survey said something else, another of those e-codes. The codes are being used, continue to use them, continue to document on them, and hopefully we'll be able to report some good news about reimbursement soon. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fick-Samnick, whom you just heard, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Angie Phillips, and Marianne McCalling, and live from London. Until next Monday, this is Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.